Welcome to another episode of Downton Gabby, Life After Downton. Today we will be discussing two TV shows, the new show Dietland, and we'll be checking in on season two of The Handmaid's Tale, compare contrast feminist leaning media in today's trying times, and see what we think about the messages they're sending. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. I'm Shannon in Oakland. And I'm Teresa in Brooklyn. Well, I'm about ready to cut out my ovaries after watching these shows, but <laughs> but I've got wine, so it's going to be okay. Maybe we should just say, like, we're recording this on the evening of June 27th. Right. It's It's been a rough week so far, um, and it's had a lot of... I've seen a lot of people on Twitter comparing our current developments with the Supreme Court, with newspapers getting shot up to... The Handmaid's Tale season two, which is not a goal. We do not want anything in that to happen in real life. Say, Brandy, I think you forgot about children being separated from their parents. Oh, right. Yeah. When the, oh my God, the ICE agents showing up in Handmaid's Tale, I literally had like a trauma response. It's just, I keep thinking about how the West Wing was on during the Bush years and it was like, It was just like this liberal fantasy world we all got to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And this is the flip side. Like, I wish (laughs) The Handmaid's Tale had come out during the Obama years and we'd be like, ha, 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 we're getting all these wonderful gains, you know, for civil rights. This will never happen. Instead, now we're like, dear God, is this tomorrow? Like, it's just too much. It's too close. Yeah, I remember (laughs) reading The Handmaid's Tale for the first time in in a book club during the Obama years. And it was... A really lively conversation, you know, in a way that is hard to have about this show. And even, like, I went back and listened to us discussing season one a little over a year ago. And, uh, man, I feel a lot more despair even. I almost didn't watch season two, honestly, because it is it is really hard to get through. You know, Margaret Atwood wrote this book in the 80s, which is when I read it because I'm 100 years old. And so when she wrote this book, there was the AIDS crisis. Reagan was president. There was mm-hmm. this incredible wave of conservatism that had seemed like it had swallowed up any gains that had been made in the 60s and 70s. And she was she was responding to a moment, you know, and I right. think that when we get these moments that are ultra conservative, even totalitarian, misogynist, violent, you know, this stuff becomes really sharp. It seems really prescient to what's going on today, but I think that every totalitarian regime is like this. Right. And if, if you're writing about this kind of pol- political situation, it's going to be resonant right now. And it was resonant in the 80s. And um, that's not uh, to say that it's good or bad or easier to deal with or not, but... It is writing about a very specific kind of political climate. So I guess I'm what I'm interested in is how useful is that in what's going on today? Like for a viewer, how how can how much can we hope that the Handmaid's Tale will be able to accomplish or any media would be able to accomplish? What's what is your goal? Tearing your hair out and like shaking in a corner? in a dark room because it's really good at that. I, you know, and I know we're bound a little bit to the source material, although season two obviously goes in its own areas, but there's the little moments of the hand, the handmaids working together is kind of their own underground network. And I wish that there could be more of that. Like I want to see the underground railroad for women Mm -hmm. in this. And and they keep, they get like one step ahead and then they get thwarted. I mean, I, I, I don't, I think why I had to stop watching it was I was like, A, I can't watch women to be physically maimed and hit all the right. time. I just can't. I had a problem with that with Itania. I just seem to not have a tolerance for that right now. Also, it's like, let me see the women band together. Let me see them win a little bit. I think those have been some of the most effective moments when we have gotten a little mm-hmm. bit of that. But I I agree. I mean, we're, we're going to throw some spoilers out there now for those if you're listening and you don't want to be spoiled through about episode 9 or 10 of uh, this season I would say don't listen but uh, there 
are some very effective moments. There's a scene where the handmaids start telling each other their real names. Mm-hmm. A scene where Offred start is able to hear a message from Radio Free America, which I uh, thought was very effective. That was a, a really beautifully done scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, I was I was so angry that I almost was like, I'm never watching this show again when they got to almost having her escape over the border and then being plucked back. And I knew it. I knew she wasn't going to make it. Like, you're just waiting for the moment when it's ripped away. Mm-hmm. And it just felt so cheap to me in a, in a way because they aren't showing so much of the resistance. They're wasting the fact that Moira escaped and not really showing what life is like outside of Gilead. They're not really even showing what life is like in other parts of Gilead. I feel like I'm confused by how small the narrative is when you're talking about an entire country having been taken over (laughs) by fascist religious people. Mm -hmm. There's also this completely sublime act of terrorism done by a handmaid, which I've Mm -hmm. watched that scene probably six times now partly because it's very satisfying but also because it's shot so beautifully like just Mm -hmm. watching her like reveal what's in her hand the reactions of Mm -hmm. the other handmaids just all all of it is is this incredibly beautiful set piece and um it was definitely a way to like let some of the tension and steam out a little having that happen but it's all little moments i mean i think since Mm -hmm. we know there's a season three this is gonna keep going yeah and i think that is frustrating to me and it's something that i get frustrated with in shows a lot i think i complained about it in some parts of game of thrones and certainly i remember back to the days of lost it was an issue yeah where you you can feel the writers spinning their wheels because they know that they have so many episodes to fill yeah so I kind of wish that this was had an end date in mind because right now it feels like, well, we got to keep operating Gilead for a whole nother season kind of a thing. You know, Handmaid's Tale is very well written. But when you really remember, it's written by an, el- an elderly white guy. He is the main writer. And I think this is a missing component. Women mm-hmm. know how to keep secrets. And we know how to support each other. And we know how to show each other something with a glance. Because this world is so unsafe for women. I mean, this is why the finale of Big Little Lies is so good. Because you see all of that. You see the unspoken tribal nature of women that it doesn't take much. And he, I don't think he gets that. And I think that's where the resistance thing isn't working. You get a moment and then they get slapped down. But it's like... I'm sorry, women would be good at resisting together. There's interesting stuff happening in the colonies um, where Offglen and, and, I mean, sorry, Emily and Janine get sent. There's yeah. some really interesting kind of under-the-radar stuff happening there, especially with Emily and the appearance of a of a wife that's being punished. Marissa Tomei is going to get her best guest actress at me out of that. Was that Marissa Tomei? <laughs> yeah. I couldn't tell. She's definitely had some work done on her face. She didn't quite look like herself. But I was like, is that her? <laughs> yeah, it was a really funny, weird little cameo. But there's just some really interesting quiet stuff going on there yeah i i would agree because i think one of my favorite smaller moments was the even just the look on emily's face when she sees janine there and allowing herself a tiny moment Mm. of like i'm happy to see my friend Mm -hmm. in this like incredibly fucked up scenario i think those kind of moments they come so much from the actresses though to go to shannon's yeah they really do. I mean, they're, a lot of them are doing a ton without uh, necessarily being able to speak it out loud. I mean, you think about fried green tomatoes. Fried green tomatoes? <laughs> Those bitches cut up her, her abusive husband and they sold him as ribs in the restaurant. <laughs> I do not remember that. each other and be sneaky. Like, I'm sorry. But it's just hard for me to believe that they can't do anything together. It's disappointing because with Emily's storyline and with her and June connecting in season one, even over the letters, which are another effective moment mm-hmm. in season yes. two, the release of the Very letters. Very effective. 
I had hoped and expected that we were going to see more concrete stuff in the resistance. And instead what we've kind of gotten is these like oblique moments with Nick, the mysterious yeah. stealth hero who I can't uh. stand. <laughs> and that's really our only in to like who's really resisting within Gilead. I, I just want more of that. I really want more of that. I had to double check that fried green tomatoes was written by a woman. It was. <laughs> Because Fanny flag, no? Fanny flag. Yeah. yeah. Because seriously, women know how to do this stuff. I mean, I really brought in a dated reference. <laughs> <laughs> you win. But it was like, I remember being a kid and watching that and being like, I would so do that for one of my girlfriends. <laughs> like, it just was like a no-brainer. <laughs> and I just... I don't know, you get a moment of that when they're, you know, the scare tactic of they're going to hang all the handmaids. Right. You know, and they're they're finding little ways to hold each other's hands. And you see it back in the Red Center, all the little things that they do to each other. Mm-hmm. But I just think they're giving the regime a little too much power. It's pretty sadistic. Well, let's talk about what, I mean, we're sort of thinking about what we wish we were seeing. And maybe some of that is reflective of what we <laughs> want to see in the real world these days. <laughs> But I still think it's a really well-done show, and particularly I've been impressed with Serena Joy Mm -hmm. this season. And I mean, I think I tweeted yesterday, how do we sit all the gleeful Republican women down (laughs) who want the, like, repeal of Roe versus Wade and everything and make them realize they're going to feel like Serena Joy does when she gets handed that fucking agenda that only has pictures on it because she's not allowed to read and the look of embarrassment on her face is just priceless. Oh. That's how they're going to feel. I just thought of another really wonderful moment in season two when the commander is in the hospital and Serena Joy takes over and she starts yeah. writing all of his papers and has uh, June edit them for her. Even more than just that she decides to do that work because she can convince herself that it's all for the good of the district and everything. There's a moment while they're doing the work when she puts on a record and pours herself a drink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes. Like, that's how you know it's really, like, a decision she's making for herself in that moment. Oh, she loves to drink. <laughs> Let the woman have a cocktail. <laughs> but she pours herself like a scotch, you know. It's very, it's a very male action that they show her take. Yes. Um, it's the same way that he's poured himself a scotch in his study before, and it's very effective. And then, of course, when that's inevitably yanked away from her in uh, a terrible, terrible scene. I mean, it's a great written scene, but it's really hard to watch. It's extremely effective because she's in this self-made prison and there's the only way she can even cope with it is just to press down all of the like regret, turn it into anger and blame, and then turn it back on June, uh-huh. which right. is, again, very hard to watch, but extremely effective. My favorite character in season two is Serena Joy and props to Yvonne Strakowski for playing her, again, with so much subtlety. Just a look, you know, expresses Mm -hmm. so much. Her, I love the scene with her in Toronto where she meets the American guy in the bar, Mm -hmm. and he's basically telling her to defect (laughs) and write a book about it. And it's all just so interesting because she can't reveal anything, but you know that her her mind is probably just vibrating. Oh, it's a fantastic performance. She's incredible. It's really fantastic. And, like, you've seen all her humiliation. You know all of her frustration. This guy's offering her a way out. And you know she can't take it. And there's so much tension between them. Uh, I really wanted her to take it. Like, (laughs) as much as I hate her in so many moments... In that moment, aren't you rooting for yes. her? Are you just rooting for her escape? Completely rooting for her. For her to come back over to the light? Yeah, I was really rooting for her. And I knew that nothing was going to happen. But I, I root for her all the time. That's the, that's the, the genius I did, of this I did role. too. She's a horrible person. And yet I'm always rooting for her. She's a tragic victim, though. She's a tragic victim to all of the messages that are stuffed down women's throats. Just her obsession with having a baby, because that's like the ultimate validation of Mm -hmm. her as a woman, and that she will literally go to any length. She probably fucking designed that horrible 
ceremony <laughs> fucking holding hands. I mean, it's horrible. She probably designed it. She probably drew up the specs. I have a question. There are so many ceremonies in this society. How long has it been in existence? Because there are so many choreographed events, like when the handmaids yeah. die and there's a specific way of walking around with, around the coffins and then there's this thing yeah, with Yeah, or the like group wedding. Yeah, yeah, the group wedding and the red string and the green string and when did they learn all of this? Like they don't have TV. They got time. <laughs> Somebody sat down and designed like not only the dresses that everyone would wear, mm-hmm. but the exact like heel height that the wives would have. Like I think about these details. Mm-hmm. I think about who swept in and took out all of the modern details from these old houses and made them look like <laughs> old again. How many, like, iron bedsteads did they have to order from an antique store? I mean, I don't think it would be quite this pristine and perfect if the evangelicals got their own country in America. But You know who did all that was the gender traitors. They were like, design everything and now we'll kill you. (laughs) That's who did it. Yeah, they just have a warehouse of gay men sewing. I've got an idea. It's like, you know, you know how Margaret Atwood was inspired for these hats because she was terrified by the women on the butter labels that wore the hats and they used to scare her as a child and that's where she came up with these like handmade hats and you could just imagine some gay guy being like, I got it. We're going to, these butters, I hated them. We're going to put the butter women on their heads. I mean, I'm just obsessed with where are these factories making all these red clothes? Well, this is why, like, that glimpse that we got when June was on the run of the sort of normal people Mm -hmm. who were allowed to still be leading their own, like, compartmentalized lives Mm -hmm. with their spouses and their kids. Wearing Eileen Fisher separates. I would kill for those (laughs) clothes. (laughs) They really were, but I was like, this is so interesting because I've really been craving to know more about the bigger world. But I was also like, where did this kid get these marbles and this, like, wooden horse? Like, did they have, like, deliveries of all the stuff you're allowed to have? Like, where's the toy factory that's making only stuff from the 1940s? I just, I, I want answers to these questions. Like, I'm joking, but I also am like, there are so many details with world building. I need to know where this stuff came the from. The whole, you know? yeah, the whole, that whole class of people have clothing and children's toys that people in my neighborhood would kill for. <laughs> right. That's it. That's where they got it. They just got it from Brooklyn. <laughs> they went to Brooklyn yeah. and they bought out all the artisanal toy stores. Funny story. My friend Carly, who does listen to this podcast, was telling the story. She's like, oh my God, I found this beautiful cape online. I ordered it. It was this beautiful blue. And I, it comes <laughs> in. I put it on. And my husband's like, oh, you're on that side of things, huh? And she's like, I fucking look like Serena Joy. She's like, I can never wear it. It's gorgeous. This is awful. They've ruined capes for everyone. I know. I was like, and so then when I started watching again, I started cracking up. I was like, it's, it is a beautiful cape. There's this really interesting, I mean, this isn't like any like shocking revelation, but you know, the blue of the Virgin Mary and the red of Mary Magdalene Mm -hmm. and the Martha, you know, Martha of the Mary and Martha. It's all sort of biblical references. Thank you for that, Therese. I never would have gotten that the the, the Bible was referenced. Really? You're just making fun of me. (laughs) But here's my point. There's no yellow in this show. Yellow's too happy of a color. There's not even a lot of yellow in the film. Like, if you look at the actual film stock that they're using, yeah, they have taken the yellows out. Well, I mean, that I think that's, like, really just a tonal choice more than anything. I mean, there was no yellow in the Americans either, you know? Like, it's what you do when you want things to be serious and depressing. I'll just take this moment to do a PSA for the final season of The Americans that everyone should watch it because it was the best finale ever in the history of TV. So, I really think it was incredible. I was thinking about it for days. And then I said to someone that I thought it was the best finale I'd ever seen. And they were like, what about Six Feet Under, which is always the gold standard. And right. I was like, maybe tied with Six Feet Under. Like, that's how good it was. <laughs> okay, I don't want to know. Do not tell me. Not not saying anything. Else. Not saying details, but when you think about what you want out of finale, right? You want it to be 
the mirror image of the pilot, you know, the foil to it, and the culmination of all of the seeds planted in the pilot. And it is that. But you also want to be surprised. But you also want to be surprised. It's all of those things. I don't, you know, we're talking about little moments in The Handmaid's Tale, which, yes. But in The Americans, there's so many tiny moments that speak volumes in a very different type of tone. And um, I I couldn't stop thinking about it. And uh, it was absolutely perfect, so... Carrie Russell better get her fucking Emmy this year. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That's all I'm fucking saying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about back to my, I wish this was on during the Obama years. She was Peggy Olsen. So she couldn't have been off red. But for us, it would have been better if it was during the Obama years. For us, it would have been better. I don't know. This is goes back to my question about like, media consumption and what media can do right now like I saw today I mean I follow a lot of writers and stuff on Twitter and so I see a lot of people lamenting like how can I even be like working on my novel or my script when the world is like this and then someone else comes back and is like well Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird in the middle of the civil rights you know yeah (laughs) it all matters it definitely matters um it's it's still hard as a viewer to know what you're supposed to be taking from it for your own life right like I don't know that I really feel inspired after I watch an episode of The Handmaid's Tale no I don't know that it's helping me in any way shape or form I just enjoy it am I a monster (laughs) no I I don't think so at all but I mean like the stuff that I'm in in really enjoying is maybe a little more escapist than that. I don't know. I guess I was enjoying the Americans, which is also, you know, relevant in weird ways and, and somewhat bleak. But I mean, I'm just really excited to watch the second season of glow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm enjoying like, the new season of younger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. That's also, I think pretty feminist in a lot of ways, if only because it's centering interesting women's stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't wait for Tara and Johnny's new Food Network show, which started this week, <laughs> and I've got it recorded, and I can't wait. It's Wedding Cakes. It's Tara and Johnny. Therapy. There that you go. Great. That's me right now. But watching the first two episodes of season two was very traumatizing for me. I think it was, I definitely should have watched them before all, everything we learned about the tender age centers, um, <laughs> because definitely that second episode is really upsetting. And I also don't feel like there isn't a rallying call. There isn't, you know, we've been in this mode in storytelling because we're seeing stuff that got greenlit like two years ago. That's the problem with Hollywood. That everything is really bleak. We need real hero stories, not fucking superheroes. We need regular people banding together, hiding from the government, doing heroic shit that's what we need and we're not I guess we'll get those stories in four years if we're alive you know but it's like what I this bleak stuff isn't working right now you get that I mean you just got to read some more YA series I guess but I mean then you think about how even the the most famous one the Hunger Games the ending is quite bleak actually I you know what I think this is a, a interesting segue uh, because we're talking about how we want, on Handmaid's Tale, we want action, we want the women to strike back, we want them yeah. to succeed. And the other show we're talking about tonight is Dietland, which is centered around a terrorist group of presumably women killing men who have gotten away with terrible crimes against other women. Well, now, I wish that's what it was centered around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. me too. Okay. But that's happening sort of in the background while another narrative that could also be quite interesting is happening, but I feel the show's quite disjointed. I've also read the novel, which has, I think, some of the same issues while dealing with really interesting themes. It maybe doesn't take things as far enough. It doesn't uh, bring it all together in a satisfying way, but what are you guys feeling about this show? Let's talk about what we what we feel works on the show first. So one of the things that um, works for me on the show is Plum. Plum has her mm-hmm. issues, but I like her. And as someone who has been fat her whole life, I have to say that there are many touchstones that she 
uh, hits in these episodes that seem resonant and real to me. And while I'm very frustrated with her character and, and the sort of like circular thing she's got going on about her body image and her weight and her surgery and her baking and all of that, there's a lot of that that also feels real to me. I'm not excited that like the second like large woman who is a lead character on a TV show is obsessed by her weight. This that's not that's not actually the show I want to see. Yeah, it's really disappointing. There's so, she's obviously really smart, really cares, and I was just really disappointed in the pilot that I, I literally if I was gonna chart how much she talked about her weight, it would be way more than anything else she talked about because she is she does have other things to talk about. But the show is called Dietland. I mean, I know. that's what the show's about. So in the world of the show, like, right. that is the show. I wish somebody could develop another show with a large woman as a central character where her weight is just not an issue. I think the woman in the pilot who comes into the, uh, like, Weight Watchers or whatever the hell that yeah. is. And she comes waste in. Waste Watchers. Waste Watchers. And she comes in and she's like, what the fuck is the matter with you people? I get more dick than, you know, whatever, and and then leaves in a huff. I'm like, let's let's do a show about her. That would be Oh, fun. I totally wanted to follow her. I was like, I'm gonna be friends with you. Let's go. Let's go get a drink. Right. What the fuck is this? But so given given that this is a show called Dietland and it centers on a woman who has issues about her weight, I really wanna like the show, but I'm just really confused with its intent. Well, I think I find it frustrating because Plum is very confused by what the changes and the people she's encountering in her life, right? She gets involved with this sort of semi-culty women's group, Calliope House. They start sending her Verena Baptist, who is the heiress to a diet fortune, feels guilty about where all her money came from and seems to be trying to sort of help wayward women. Yet... She won't actually say what her goals are or what she's meaning to accomplish specifically for Plum. She's just bribing her with $20,000 to go and do all of these little missions like getting waxed and going on bad first dates. And I had this issue in the book too where I was like, why do we have to put this character through the ringer? She already knows how the world looks at her. I don't understand the point of sort of torturing this character on her journey of becoming a better person or not even a better person, but expanding her worldview, I guess. It's it's flailing about a bit, and, and that's frustrating because Joy Nash is a very good actress, I think. I think that um, Verena, first I thought she was like a typical ultra-rich do-gooder lady who's completely clueless about real people. But now I'm thinking she's like the world's scariest therapist. <laughs> she's also Calamity Jane. She's also Calamity Jane. Yeah, Robin Weigert. It does take on a little bit, those therapy sessions with her are a little like, is this, is this is like Westworld. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you no, know? like you don't have to give anything away to the person that you're speaking to because they're not on your level. And I think that's, it's a frustrating way to get into those scenes because you don't necessarily come away having learned anything. Yeah. The, the tone, I don't, I don't even know how to describe the tone. (laughs) Well, it's like five, it's five different tones. You've got ugly Betty going on at the magazine with a dash of devil wears Prada thrown in for good measure. Mm -hmm. And then you've got this weird rom-com bizarreness mm-hmm. with the gay best friend and the you know cop who's I don't know they're meeting cute what's gonna happen oh he's married oops I mean uh, he's also old I, yeah he's not appealing and and he's not in the book right Brandy he's not in the book and the best friend is a woman in a book in the book and a little more a little less involved Plummet feels more isolated I mean I said after I watched the pilot, which I actually watched the two-hour pilot with a few other people who had also read the book, and all of us were like, wow, you can really feel the network note where they were like, 
we need to have some male characters because yeah. <laughs> they changed a character to a man. They invented a man. They There were men hanging out at Calliope House, which would have been completely forbidden and in the version of that cultish thing going on in the book, which is way more surreal, the things that go on there. And I think that's kind of what's missing from the show is the book has a surreal satirical quality to it that kind of holds together the elements that otherwise feel more disjointed. And the show seems to be just laying on, leaning on these weird animated sequences in order to be oh. like, see, it's oh. wacky. I hate those. Yeah, so much. they're not good. Guys, I'm going to say something. Marty Noxon has a really hard time writing something that's truly feminist. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Girlfriend's Guide mm-hmm. to Divorce. Diet Land. What was that one about them eating disorder? Nobody, I don't know any women that like to that. To the Bone? I liked that movie. I liked it. I yeah. think she has some stuff she needs to examine in herself. She has a hard time. I, I don't know. that. Just it, It's tonal issues. And it's very uneven in really being feminist. Maybe. I mean, I, I, I think I like her a lot more than you do. I'm certainly a Buffy season six apologist. So. <laughs> I mean, I love Girlfriends Get a Divorce, but I also recognize the problems in it. There's a lot of worshiping of really, like, really fucked up stuff that women do to their bodies to be attractive. Uh, um, I think, you know, Marty Noxon, she is very open about the fact that she was anorexic and struggles with that in real life. And so I think she said that her recent projects have been really all about the relationship that women have with their, to their bodies. And, um, but I, I don't know if, if we're really getting a concrete message about that. And, you know, that's the same thing I was saying before is like, if a show is not giving me not making it clear what it's trying to say i'm i'm a little frustrated these days and maybe that's on me maybe i'm being too simplistic but i just i kind of want to know what your viewpoint is and i don't i'm not getting that from diet land yet well why couldn't it be from whoever this jennifer is give me the fucking feminist revenge i'd love that (laughs) i'd love to see some women chopping dicks off making examples of men dropping them off you know, I mean, let's let's take Harvey Weinstein. Let's drop him off a highway. Well, they Fine. they drop Terry Richardson down into the middle of an Upper yeah. East Side cafe. So there's that. Yeah, but it's all on the periphery, you know. I want to not... be with them. Let's see some lady rage. You never get that. You know, you never get that. So I'm like, that's where the story is, and I'm living on the edge with you know living in these same oppressed ideas that i already have to exist in all day every day like give me the women who are give me the female heroes who are busting out of the mold also do you notice that all the women are either super super skinny or really big like there are no size 14 16s in this show there's not even a size eight there they're just they're just zero yeah (laughs) they're just aren't I'm really concerned about Juliana Margulies. I mean, <laughs> she, those veins when she was punching, I was like, oh my God, get this girl a juice or something. You you all know how much how out. much I love Juliana Margulies, right? You know how yeah. much I talk about The Good Wife and how much I yeah. worship her. I have never seen her worse, worse in a show than this. I don't know what she's doing. And you know what? I read, um, I read a bunch of, pieces on on this show and everyone thinks she's awesome and i don't get it i don't get it (laughs) i don't i don't think that her character is really hitting for me i'm just really distracted by the bad wig oh the wig is so (laughs) awful the wig is terrible she looks really skeletal which i guess is trying to make a point but i I don't see it i know it's trying to make a point but i you're just a human and you worry about this other human that doesn't look healthy. No, she looks really unhealthy. And I know it's for a point, but it's also (laughs) just like, are you okay? Are you okay? You know? (laughs) Kitty, Kitty, are you okay? I don't know. Just, just didn't work. It's just, you know, sometimes the tone, and tone is such a big deal. It's a hard, it's a really abstract thing, but 
if you don't have it right, it just, it makes it really off-putting. I was thinking about watching the first couple episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and I remember we talked about her on the show, and we were all like, this is interesting. I don't know. I'm not sure. We need to watch more of it. And I sort mm-hmm. of, and, and it became one of my favorite shows. And I sort of yeah. took that attitude after I watched the part, like, episode one and two of this Giant Land, and I thought... Okay, it's got that same thing. Like, I don't quite get the tone, but it is pretty different from a lot of other Mm. things. And, you know, let's see what happens. And I'm in the middle of episode five now, and it's still confusing me a lot. (laughs) I think I'm going to power through on the season. And part of that is just by nature of having read the book and comparing some of the things that I can see they're already changing. I I don't like the changes they've made in regards to Plum's personal life, but I do like what they're hinting out as far as where this Jennifer thing is going to go, which I found really um, dissatisfying, the resolution of that in the book, the sort of reveal of who Jennifer is. Even the small details that we've seen so far tell me that they're going to do something different here. Um, And perhaps once they get if the, if there is a season 2 they would be diving more into a network of mm-hmm. women yeah. which is really what where for me the the interest would lie again going back to what we were saying about the handmaid's tale individual stories of women are obviously great but i'm really interested these days in stories about women working together for a greater power uh, i think women are really powerful when they can connect with one another in a way that is super interesting in a society where we still don't have a lot of overt power in government or in media or wherever. Those stories are something that I really want to see. That's right. Yeah. Patriarchy isolates us and pits us against each other. Yeah. So things that fight back against that, like Shannon was saying, even, you know, on a smaller level, if, 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 every woman can connect to another two or three women, the network grows and grows, right? Like that's the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about for a lot of things. I mean, that's the kind of thing we're going to be need to be thinking about if and when Roe versus Wade gets overturned and we have our abortion underground railroad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, those kind of things are, are really at the forefront of my mind right now. And I, I want the media I'm watching to be taking it seriously. And yeah, it takes a few months to a year or two to catch up. <laughs> I hope they can hurry. Uh, another sign that the Handmaid's Tale is written by a man. There's no abortion underground railroad. One <laughs> of those fucking Handmaid's Tale was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And there's no way in hell they want those babies to be born yeah. oh, in yeah. this world. I mean, they would be figuring out how to go to the store and doing a quickie abortion. They'd figure it out. Because women know how to do this shit and protect each other. And they just know how to do it, you know? And I just think it's like, let's get to that story. Let's get to the hopeful storylines. Yeah. Let's get there. We need it. My goodness. We already know how bad it is. Well, I'm I'm yeah. I'm in Diet Land for Jennifer. I'm I'm going the distance for Jennifer. Yeah, I think I'm in the show. I'm in it for the actresses, Joy Nash. We haven't even mentioned Aaron Dark of the late lamented Good Girls Revolt, who plays the side character. I love her. Um, I think there's a lot of potential here. It's one of those where a lot of the frustration just comes from being like, you have all these elements, just do something with it, you know? Just go for it. Hell, I'm thrilled to see Deborah Monk in this show. I love her generally, and I I love I loved her in Mozart in the Jungle. I just like her generally. She's a great character actress. I think she mm-hmm. has only one line so far, which is, you're wonderful the way you are. <laughs> if they give her a little bit more to do, that would be awesome. But yeah. I'm glad to see and, her. I mean, Tamara Tooney, who's down in the beauty closet, I'm, she's oh, a great gosh. actress. And I'm intrigued by the changes they've made to that character, who is younger and white in the book. I really liked that they went a little further outside the box with that casting. But they have to give her something to do. <laughs> yes. Uh, we'll see. I'm definitely going to finish season one. And I'm really, I'm rooting for the show as much as I'm frustrated with it as well. Well, I'll be looking forward to hearing your thoughts. And you let me know what Tara and Johnny make. <laughs> yeah. I will keep you posted on the cakes. I'm back in my usual spot of being the hater 
this podcast. Oh yeah, it was good you to had be like back. Two in a row where you were the generous one, and I was like, "Shit, I know. Shannon's I know. getting soft." I know. No. <laughs> okay, this is what also is frustrating. You get these little teases. Oh, something's been greenlit. Remember there was an amazing project about that real life female pirate in like the Asian seas. I don't remember what. Yeah. You were. They were gonna make something about her. We're gonna get two Salem witches projects. We're I don't know a million Amazon projects about the real Amazons, and we never get any of it. Instead, we get this. There's also uh, Jane, which was the Chicago Abortion Network before Roe v. Wade. There's supposed to be a what? movie. There's supposed to be a show. I don't know. I, I I was frustrated looking at the slate of shows that have been greenlit for the fall because it's just like a lot more just like cops, you know, <laughs> like doing their oh, thing. Oh, yeah, because that's what we really want to hear more of, their perspective. Cops exclamation mark. So... Once again, after we've hated on some stuff, let's talk about what we love. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about a show that's probably going to do the opposite of Dietland, which is start really high and then maybe fall apart, because it's made by one Mr. Ryan Murphy. (laughs) Well, that's how he does. But I fucking love Pose. Like, everybody needs to watch this show. Even if it starts falling apart, I feel like it's really important that it gets at least a season two. Because it is being made by and centering trans people, trans writers, trans actors, trans crew members. It is, and it's really good. Like, I just fucking enjoy watching it. It's so stylish. It's funny. It's heartfelt. Even the white actors are good. <laughs> Even the I started watching the pilot and just, like, got distracted so I couldn't finish it. And I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm into this. <laughs> I will definitely be watching it's this. It's fun. I mean, I'm not by any means an expert on the ball scene in the 1980s. I've seen <laughs> Paris is Burning, that's it. So I think building a show inside of that world is so interesting. And seeing these characters who are all just really fighting for themselves and also for each other... I mean, this is the kind of show that I really want to be seeing these days. I mean, I wish that it wasn't still completely relevant. I wish that, you know, something set in the 80s that we could look at 30 years later and see more progress. But it is so resonant still. And it's completely demonstrating the fact that there are tons of queer actors of color and trans actors out there who should have been getting work all along. I mean, some of these actors are just fucking electric, and it's it's a travesty that they aren't already huge stars. No, no, no. We have to we have to get those straight actors to get their Oscar nomination that they <laughs> play gay or trans, or how oh, how are they gonna really get to stretch themselves? <laughs> That's something you can point to that I don't think is gonna get taken away from us. Is like even in the last like five years, like I don't think Jared Leto would have gotten a nomination for Dallas Buyers Club in 2018 versus a few years ago. And I really hope that this show ends up winning some Emmys for people. I think it's really important to, to demonstrate and to recognize the skill that's on display here. It is... It, I just really like the show. I really wish more people would watch it. I, I'm like out in the streets evangelizing this show right now. <laughs> Pose, 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 pose is so good. And the music is so good. <laughs> so my fabulous thing, uh, because I just can't get enough of like, oh, difficult, disturbing content matter, <laughs> um, uh, is Hannah Gadsby's Netflix mm. comedy special. And I put comedy in quotes because... While it is sort of on the surface a comedy stand-up show that Netflix does a lot of, Hannah Gadsby takes it to a whole nother place. There are moments in it that are incredibly serious, incredibly moving, really fierce. I was really moved and blown away by it. And uh, if you don't know who Hannah Gadsby is, she's a um, Tasmanian lesbian she talks a lot about both of those things including how being a lesbian (laughs) was illegal in Tasmania when she was growing up 
Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also in the show Please Like Me, which is just a I completely delightful, oh, yeah. delightful Australian series that's centered on a young man who's gay. Anyway, I think she's great. I I really found her quote unquote stand up comedy um, so inspiring. I put it on my swipe list to inspire me as I'm working on this film I'm doing right now because I loved her voice so much. So it's not all jokes. Um, but I think it's worth watching. It's incredible. I mean, I went into it a little bit without knowing what it was. Like, I knew who she was because I'd seen Please Like Me. I saw a couple people tweet, like, you gotta watch this, it's so good. I was like, all right, let me watch it. And I don't even, like, really want to spoil the, like, journey that you're taking on. (laughs) And I also read an interview with her where she was making fun of the term one-woman show, but it kind (laughs) of is that. It is, yeah, it is. I mean, it is a, it is a storytelling masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It is so important, the message that she has. Again, I'm like harping on this, but I want things to have a succinct, specific message these days because <laughs> I think they get, there's too much going on. Things are getting too messy. <laughs> and I just want to know, what do you think? Tell me what your viewpoint is. Tell me what your experience is and why it matters. And that is 100% what she does. It's incredible. It's it's really stunning to me to think that she's been like on the road with this and doing this show like night after night. I don't know. I can't even imagine. I can't imagine what toll that must have taken on her emotionally. Yeah. Um, and I really feel like I should send her money. Like, yeah, I, know. I can't believe I got to just watch it as part of my like generic eight dollars a month Netflix thing. Like. It's just ridiculous how good it is. I, I want to write her a check. Yeah. If you're listening, Hannah Gadzi, <laughs> send put on your PayPal link. Like, I yeah, feel bad. start a Patreon. I owe you $50. Well, I, and and, and it is like at times it's screamingly funny. Like it, she's oh, really yeah. funny, really funny. But her whole riff on Vincent Van Gogh alone is worth the price of admission. So here's the funny thing. Uh, this is gonna be a, a tiny spoiler, but if you haven't seen it, you won't understand why. But I went to do my laundry the next day after this, and I had totally forgotten, like I've walked past this hundreds of times in the almost five years I've lived in my building, that there is a replica of sunflowers hanging in our fucking laundry room. (laughs) That's weird. And because she talks about it in the show, I was like, I was like stunned. I like stopped and I'm staring at this photo and I'm like, sunflowers? (laughs) It's here. It's in front of me. It's a message from Hannah Cassidy. <laughs> well, I'm mostly just annoyed neither of you texted me that I should watch this. I forget that I you're not, like, it. ever on Twitter anymore because I feel like no, I've been tweeting about because, it. So No, because I'm self-care for Andy. So <laughs> I'm no, not, I, I, I deleted Facebook off my phone and I'm not looking at Twitter these days. You Well, it's, you guys watch it this weekend and you will not be disappointed. I, okay. I don't think you'll we'll be do. disappointed, but I will give you a trigger warning, you know, given the things that you've been yeah. sharing with us on this podcast. Here's a teensy-weensy little trigger warning for you. Okay, well, I hope nobody cuts off one of her fingers. No, so. no, no, no. no. <laughs> all right, all right. No, she's... We're okay, then. They're not going to, like, put her in a noose? They're not going to put her in a noose? No! I mean, like, she goes to a here. real place. She goes to a real place of anger yeah. being part of it. And That's I think great. It, I didn't feel like triggered by it no. I felt like I felt like a connection mm-hmm. in that oh, getting pissed is great yeah yeah it was yeah. great um well I'm going to talk about something the opposite of that um so put your nerd hats on all right nerd hats on yeah they're on okay so I've been obsessively listening to this is also my self-care um the binge mode harry potter Doubt this is a podcast it. it's a podcast so uh, Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion from The Ringer. So they um, write a lot about Game of Thrones and they did a whole binge mode where they went through every episode of Game of Thrones and they've both read the books so they know all the canon. So now they're doing the Harry Potter books. And each day they're doing a few chapters of each of the books. But they talk about all the books, all the movies, the entire world of Harry Potter. And it is so delightful. I'm a huge Harry Potter nerd, no surprise. Uh, and it is so fun. It is so delightful. And they're so smart about how they think about fantasy and sci-fi. I mean, they're it, it's incredibly intelligent, their analysis of everything. And it's hilarious. 
Um, I have to say, if you love vintage Downton Gabby, I think you'll love this podcast because they're so funny, the jokes that they make, that they continue on, and they do funny voices. Shout out to Brandy's old Daisy voice. (laughs) (laughs) And you could go back and listen to their binge mode of Game of Thrones where they took every episode of Game of Thrones. And if you even just listen to the last episode, so they were like friends before, but like they really became close friends through doing this. And they, the last episode is, there's this like really beautiful moment where they talk about how much it meant to do this with each other and how much they both care about story. Oh my God. It's like, it made me cry. And it was weird. (laughs) Like I, I knew Sean had already listened to it, but they were hanging out with Ellie. She was like, did you guys listen to that binge mode? (laughs) And we're like, yeah, she's like, that was like, it was like such an intimate moment. Wow. You were witnessing where they were like, this has meant so much to me to share this with you Aww. and build our friendship. Aww. And that like, we really care about story I love and what friendship. story means. Aww, and like, nice. what story means. Like, they really talk about like, what is the role of fantasy in society? And like, they get deep. Like, I'm like, dang, you guys are really smart about, like, it would be an honor for them to talk about my book. <laughs> <laughs> it would be an honor. Thank you for listening to another episode of Downton Gabby Life After Downton. You can find us on Twitter at Downton Gabby, on Facebook by searching Downton Gabby. Listen to all the back episodes at downgabby.tumblr.com. And, you know, we would love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes if you feel so inclined. We haven't made a pitch for that in a while, but it always helps new people find the podcast. So we would really appreciate it. And thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time. Don't you know, we're talking about a revolution sounds like Don't you know, we're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines, sitting around.